and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. All right, so get ready. This one's going to be a supersize episode. I finally got to watch the entire series of The Sopranos, and I avoided this show for decades. And probably the reason why is uh, the hype behind the show. Uh, I remember when it first debuted and it was like, anytime somebody comes to me and says, oh my God, you have to watch this. I immediately go, no, I don't. Because it's it's like when you see a comedy and, and you see the, the reviews, oh, it's hilarious and hilarious with, you know, capital letters and three exclamation points. I immediately drop the expectation by 50% because when you start telling me it's hilarious, it's probably not. So with The Sopranos, it was just like you were inundated with this. And I, I did the same thing with Breaking Bad. I remember when Breaking Bad started and everybody said, you have to watch this. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's awesome. All, all the hyperbolic terms that are used to describe something. And I immediately thought, I'm not doing this. I, I'm just not doing this because everybody is telling me to do it. Now, to be fair... I finally did watch all of Breaking Bad. I, when it arrived, I believe, on Netflix, I I streamed it and watched all the seasons. And, and I have to admit, for me, it was, for me, it's, it's the greatest dramatic television series ever. Until possibly when I watched The Sopranos, or The Sopranos could be one of the most overrated, mediocre, uh, dramatic TV series ever as well. So by the end of this... It'll be interesting to see what you think my thoughts are, and uh, I'd love to hear from you on this. So I want to go back a little bit before I get into all of this, and that is I used to run a movie theater, as most of you know. I've talked about it online, and I've talked about it on previous episodes here, especially if you listen to my Enjoy the Show episode. Uh, You'll get a taste of what that was like when we had to deal with the summer of 89 and what I call the Batman summer. But anyway, in running the movie theater... Uh, it was, for a while there, it was just a spate of mob movies between Godfather 3. I remember Godfather 3 opened up on Christmas morning and there was this guy standing in the mall at the gate and I had to get in there early on Christmas morning. So I, I left my family, went in to open up the theater to this empty mall because the rest of the mall was closed and there was this guy with like this Staten Island accent and all he kept saying over and over was I gotta see the Godfather I gotta see the Godfather it was just on and on and on about this guy till finally we opened the gate and sold this guy his ticket and you know what I hope that movie really sucked for him for as much as he annoyed me but in addition to that you had Goodfellas and the family business even Innocent Blood had a mob theme and Loaded Weapon and Hoffa and Mafia 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 And I was sick of the mafia. I'm sick of the mob, mostly because we constantly over-glorify this really shitty lifestyle. It's, I don't know why people romanticize this and think that actually this is some kind of great model for either to base your families or have your children raised up upon. So while movies are great with like The Godfather 1 and 2 and, and Goodfellas, look, I enjoyed these movies. I enjoyed Casino. I, I, I like these films. 
But suddenly everyone wanted to be in the mob and, and TV crime shows were you know glorifying John Gotti and, and all these people and making it out like that they're these urban legends or or you know almost you know semi deified you know figures in American history. I mean it's glorifying a truly reprehensible lifestyle as Americans love to romanticize things. And look, even De Niro went on to spoof his tough guy mobster. I mean it had to come to that, right? I mean you spend most of your career in these tough guy roles and and mostly known for you know your your mob uh, roles. It, pretty soon you're going to have to spoof it. And so he did that with Analyze This, and then we had Analyze That, and then we even have it in Meet the Fockers and and all of that stuff. And I, I was just so fucking sick of the mob and the mafia, and I didn't want to hear anymore, how you doing, and, and all of this stuff, and bada bing, and we are glorifying a stupid, moronic, crime-laden, shitty lifestyle. So it was so tired and old when HBO announced a major dramatic mob series and I was pretty much like, whatever. And like I said when I opened this, oh, you gotta see it, you gotta see it. No, I fucking don't gotta see it. I heard about the show. And anybody who got the chance, you know, told me again how awesome it was and how I would love and I would love this. And, and the whole time that made me stay farther and farther from The Sopranos. It was an R-rated show that allowed violence, tits, and the word fuck. And my response is, big fucking deal. So like I said, I finally caught Breaking Bad and I'm going to state for the record that I, I saw Breaking Bad. And this is going to go right into this episode. I saw Breaking Bad as a straight-up drama, thriller, crime thriller, whatever you want to call it. But I saw no existential or supernatural elements to Breaking Bad. It's a straight-up story of choices. It's not about fate. I do not believe in the last minute of, of Walter White's life, we are seeing a flashback on his life flashing past his eyes. No. White got to where he was through conscious, real-world decisions with what his cancer diagnosis brought to him. Now, you can read into it whatever you like, but I saw Breaking Bad as a clear reality world-based show and a great one, but nothing esoteric. And, and again, you can read whatever you like into it. I won't spend a lot of time on ABC's loss. We know how that ended, and, and I guess the whole situation by season three and that final series episode might be one of the worst things I have ever seen. Lost was a case of knowing what it was, they knew where it was going, then basically spent almost three years after season three denying what they finally delivered. Look, uh, last year at this time I bought into Tiger King and I wondered with that by the third episode why we were again celebrating a redneck, meth-fueled lifestyle of a truly shitty human being. I looked for some of the things that people deemed binge-worthy and so I, I finally caught all of Mad Men and I invested into The Crown and found it worthwhile, although not thrilled with the casting changes in The Crown by season three, but I was a big, big fan of Gillian Anderson's Margaret Thatcher. And Peaky Blinders delivered, but it really was not much more than a late 19th century Goodfellas. Again, that mafia thing coming back into the fire, just set in a different country and century. I vested myself into the Queen's Gambit and was not compelled to go out with the rest of America to suddenly now I have to learn chess and I have to buy a chess set. It's just a show, folks. 
if it made some people truly want to learn chess to expand their minds and learn strategy, well, then that's great. The visuals, symbols, and imagery used in the show were intentional and, and often drug and alcohol induced. I wouldn't say there really are any supernatural elements to The Queen's Gambit, and I thoroughly enjoyed the show. It was a positive series, and, and it had something good to say about the human condition, and was just what we needed during this mess of a, of a global health crisis. So whether you liked it or not, uh, I, I think it was well done. So after a few crime documentary series, I decided... It just might be time for Tony Soprano and his family. So I went into The Sopranos completely cynical. So here I am running a podcast called Cinema, and I'm going into a series that's been, uh, you know, lauded as the greatest dramatic series on television of all time. But I felt I was going into Goodfellas, the series. And sure enough, as it went from episode one to two, That's exactly what it was. The episodes went on and I found them to be uneven in pacing. The writing was sloppy, often underwhelming and going nowhere or spending large amounts of time on things that just did not matter. As the show went on, the episodes move into the inexplicable slow motion moments. Like in the middle of like a shot, I remember Carmela like leaving a a room or something. and, And for some reason, she goes into slow motion and then there's this this awkward bad fade out and there are these weird freeze frames but there were no commercials so these breaks didn't make much sense and in fact they just look like errors or or sloppy production value the writing was going off into directions where there was no resolution or even a payoff now i attributed this all to being consciously pretentiously cynically avant-garde It was like taking the David Letterman approach of being anti-TV while really being a part of TV. Look, the writers and showrunner and creator David Chase were going out of their way, I felt, to upset the audience by not giving normal and expected narratives and satisfaction to an audience raised up on formulaic series TV. Were they really like, you know, Ryan Johnson before he was Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi? I mean, you know, when Johnson claimed that he was really giving you an anti-Star Wars fan movie, or was he Stanley Kubrick? Was was Chase being Stanley Kubrick in delivering The Shining as an anti-ghost story? Was David Chase and his team trying to deliberately subvert expected television norms just to be cool? So I did take note of the heavy imagery, though, starting with the ducks in Tony's pool in the first episode. And of all the things to open with, they open with a mobster's absolute love for a family of ducks using his pool for the summer. And then there are the panic attacks, and that gets him to Dr. Melfi. And the gimmick of the show was the old tough guy mafia Don is seeing a therapist, which, shocking to some was not an original concept done a number of times before. So just what was going on here with The Sopranos? It wasn't exactly engaging. It was not anywhere near as intense as Breaking Bad. I know we have 20 years of context to take in and the novelty of seeing cell phones first appear and Pentium computers and chat rooms, AOL chat rooms and AOL. AJ, if you remember in that one scene, is caught by Tony laughing while chatting in a chat room. It was so 2003, I thought. The Sopranos didn't age all that well 20 years later and lacked the classic romantic veneer of The Godfather or even the 70s setting of Goodfellas. So the cynic in me sat back, unimpressed, 
thinking the show was exactly what I thought, a product of overzealous hype and mediocrity disguised as something better. Was it more fat old guys acting like Jersey tough guys inexplicably able to kick the shit out of anyone? I mean, getting, you know, pieces of ass half their age. I mean, why are the, I mean, I get it, you know, money and power, I get it. And if, you know, they, they couldn't gun them down with impunity, I mean, they were taking advantage of, of the last days of public spaces, not under the scrutiny of cameras anywhere. So they, they got away with just killing people in parking lots. I, I'm sitting there going, aren't the cops around at all? Isn't somebody reporting this? Isn't someone seeing this? Hell, these wise guys were just beginning to lament the advent of DNA technology along with cell phones, making their jobs of hiding the bodies and, and being unreachable and cleaning the crime scenes even harder. This was the unimpressed cynics assessment of the show about halfway into the first season. And as a professional screenwriter, I couldn't believe a show with an almost unlimited budget, all of the best resources and such talented writers, producers, and directors could be so meh. It was the perfect definition of cinema. And that's why I thought, I'm going to do a podcast on this. Now look, the show was not Jaws the Revenge with terrible acting, piss poor production value, and zero regard for writing. It wasn't incompetently directed, although again, I saw what I perceived to be either sloppiness, laziness, or pretentiousness. But then I started to see some other things. The professional filmmaker and artist and screenwriter in me decided to take my own criticism and start thinking about the art I was viewing and applying a critical eye. When I did that, certain things caught it and my mind started to change. There was a strong supernatural undercurrent to The Sopranos. It was more than just some bad dreams. There were clues. The visual imagery started shaping each episode into something more complicated and suddenly, abrupt scene changes, fades to black, they were all making a little more sense. Tony's discussions with Dr. Melfi were, were opening up something more. She was calling our attention to certain symbols and imagery and interpreting them for Tony and for us. I started to follow up on these discussions with some internet searches. I was not looking ahead, just for the record in this episode. I was not looking ahead. And at that point in time, I'm telling you, I finally just saw the ending to The Sopranos. And all this time, for 20 years, I never knew the ending other than it was controversial. I started to follow up on all these discussions, like I said, with the, the internet searches and I looked at all of the characters as I, I now felt I, I'd gotten to know them pretty well by the end of the first season. Look, when I was writing Death House, I modeled the prison on Dante's Nine Circles of Hell and our intrepid FBI agents played by Courtney Palm and Cody Longo would have to go through different levels to get to the ninth one where Hell awaits and in really waits for them in the form of the five evils. So seeing Tony in Dr. Melfi's office struck me. Her office was this 70s, 80s-esque type circle. A circle. Not the usual square box office of most therapists. This had a concentric feel to it, obviously. And, and they went out of their way to shoot from the ceiling down a lot of times to give us an arena. A circular feel. And then came that episode. The Rape. I don't want to give away too much for any of you who have not seen the series. 
But by the time this occurs, Tony and Dr. Melfi have developed a true relationship, and he even declares his love for her. While it may be lust, she's the woman that has always eluded Tony Soprano. And to me, she invoked Dante's love, okay, from Dante for Beatrice in Dante's Inferno. I kept going back to my high school years of remembering Dante's Inferno and the nine circles of hell. What happens to Dr. Melfi hypes us up and it horrifies us and it plunges that doctor into her own hell. We want her to tell Tony what happened to her because we know what he will do to the guy who did this. We know the price she will pay if she tells him though. The writers up the ante, making sure to develop the story that the guy gets let off due to a technicality. We want justice for Dr. Melfi and her ineffectual ex-husband offers little recourse or help. Only Tony can help. And she consciously chose not to tell him, knowing what her fate can be if she does. It might even be worse than what she's experiencing. She will defy boundaries, both personal, professional, and moral, if she goes to Tony and gets justice through him. Now look, when it went nowhere, it seemed to me that the writing was striking a pattern. It was in the pattern of setting up something with really no resolution. And I started thinking, that's kind of like life. What kept me from leaving the series was the supernatural element, though. The dreams, the premonitions, the omens and portents. There was something else there. So before I go deeper into my three hypotheses for this show, let's take a look at the dreams and the symbolism in The Sopranos. So I'm not going in any particular order throughout the series. We have a dream of cooking when Paulie comes back home uh, from Florida and uh, he finds Big Pussy, Sal, who has long since been dead, uh, cooking in his kitchen. Well, dream interpretations of cooking, uh, they imply the need of spirituality, a hunger for emotional support, fear of loss of spirituality. Well, that's Polly. Polly has just gone through a loss in a crisis of spirituality as well. We've seen that in the beginning when Polly goes to the priest thinking, you know, I put a lot of money into the church. Doesn't that absolve me of all my sins? And the old priest kind of tells him, no, it really doesn't. And then Polly finds out that all the money he's given to the church really isn't going to help him with the big feast toward the end of the series. And most of all, Polly is abandoned. It is no coincidence, in my opinion, that his true biological mother was a nun. And he was left with his aunt who raised him up as her own child. And Paulie is feeling a loss. He has a crisis of spirit to a point where he envisions the Virgin Mary in the Bada Bing in, in the strip club. So you see that symbolism right there. In addition to that, I mean, of all the people that are cooking in his kitchen, it's Sal. And why? Because Paulie again was part of his murder. And you have to understand that murder is a sin. But does Polly really? All of these things are hitting him. And then another symbol, we have the bear. The bear that appears for a couple episodes out of nowhere. This bear just shows up to the point where it's tormenting Carmela. Uh, it scares AJ at one point. And the bear, and a symbol for the bear, is of mother, of torment, of wandering, aggressiveness, 
At first you want to think the bear is Tony. I guess it could be. But really, in my opinion, the bear is Livia Soprano, Tony's mom. Not only did she torment Carmela and try to uproot her life, but she terrified AJ by telling AJ that in the end, it's all a bunch of nothing. Life adds up to nothing, which affects AJ so much that the entire last season is really all about this. But let's go further. We have the horse, Piomai. And we know what happens to the horse. I'll get to that later in this podcast. But a dead horse often means trouble. It means mistrust. It means danger. But a horse in the house symbolizes, under the dream interpretations I looked up, family turmoil. That's important. I mean, that speaks for itself, obviously, when you watch the series. We'll come back to the horse and Piomai in a little bit. Self-immolation. There's a scene where Tony is on the Jersey boardwalk and he takes gasoline and he douses himself with the gas and is looking to be set on fire. And I believe uh, Silvio is the one who lights the match. Well, self-immolation in dreams is interpreted as internal conflict. And there's no coincidence here. Tony's internal conflict is feeling that there is a, a traitor among them. Is it Sal or is it Polly? He looks through the binoculars on, on the boardwalk. Even after Silvio says in his Michael Corleone imitation, our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. Okay? This is not coincidence. This is not just art. This is deliberate imagery here. We have the Oswald Kennedy conspiracy. From the basics of Uncle June liking his doctor, uh, Dr. Kennedy. And uh, Uncle June invokes uh, Kennedy again in, in his final scene with Tony at the very end of the series. Again, going back, uh, he references Bobby Kennedy at the end. But yet, Tony has a dream where he's walking through an alleyway and he looks up in a window and there is clearly a Lee Harvey Oswald, lone gunman kind of guy with, with a rifle in the window. Constantly, conspiracy. There is a conspiracy against Tony, whether it's coming from uh, the rival gangs in New York or within himself or even the FBI. And look, we even have the Lincoln imagery. Uh, Tony is constantly seen watching the History Channel and generals and generals and generals, mostly World War II. But yet in the last season, what's on the History Channel? A very solid image of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, who was assassinated and assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. And again, I talked about the generals imagery. And even Pauly painting uh, Tony as a general in the painting with Piomai. He had Tony repainted as such. Again, Tony fancies himself as the general. He's, he's a patent. He often refers to himself uh, as Gary Cooper from High Noon. He is a man of leadership. But that all starts falling apart by the last season. So we'll get to that in a little bit. In the final episode in Made in America, there is a sit-down with Butchie uh, with the uh, peace meeting at, at this warehouse where uh, Phil's death is confirmed and that Tony is given the go-ahead to kill Phil Leotardo. And all the chairs are white, except for Polly's. Polly sits in that chair and the red chair's symbolism is of treason. And we'll come back to that. And then, of course, we have 3 o'clock. Chris comes out of his coma after being shot by the two young guys 
and he says he's gone to hell and he comes back with a message for Polly and Tony, already linking them together. And that is a guy that they had killed gave the message three o'clock. Now, of course, Polly, who is superstitious, instantly goes after three o'clock, literally on the clock, the witching hour, the Ides of March, perhaps, something like that. However, three o'clock can also be a direction on the face of a clock, the position of three o'clock on an open face clock. We'll talk about that. And then you have the trip to Italy, by the way, just while we're talking about dreams and visions. And, and is the trip to Italy really a trip to the Oracle of Delphi? Okay, the mentions of hallucinogenic smokes and visions there in, in the caverns and in those uh, catacombs. And then we have the ducks in the opening. Ducks flying in your home or on your property are seen as bad fortune ahead. They are ominous according to the dream interpretations and symbology resources I looked at. Now, of course, Dr. Melfi wants to give the interpretation that it's Tony feeling maudlin and sad because the ducks represent his children leaving him. Maybe. It also means to understand how fortunate you are seeing ducks as well. They can also bring that imagery. And then we have the black bird, the raven. Chris is watched by that black bird during his ceremony, inducting him officially in. Chris is watched, and it means death. And he even invokes that bird later on, that fucking bird, he tells Adriana. It can also mean rebirth. And remember, Chris came back from the dead. He came back from hell. And then we have water. Ocean is the depth of the subconscious. Tony has his dreams of, of the Jersey Shore. And the fear of, you know, oceans are the fear of what is hidden and come to the surface. Chaos, I mean, enough said there. But lakes often mean tranquility, symbolizing a change of life. It is also a place of death and rebirth. Lakes can serve as a mirror of self-reflection. And we saw that in uh, Tony's episode toward the end in the last season called Soprano Home Movies, where he goes to the lake and he goes up with Bobby and Janice and Carmela for his birthday. A time of change, a change of life is coming where things are discussed up there that may be reflected in the final episode. And then we have the cat, the stray cat that comes out of nowhere in the safe house and Tony keeps the cat. And the cat is fixated upon Chris's picture and Polly is spooked by this because the cat is looking at something. The cats are often seen in dreams as a bridge to the supernatural world. They are at almost even a tour guide into the supernatural world. Chris came back from the dead, if you remember. He came back from hell. Is there a connection with the cat that recognizes that? And it spooks and wigs out Polly because of his superstitious nature. But the cat is fixated no matter where they move the picture of Chris. The cat follows the picture. There is a supernatural connection between the cat and its symbology and Christopher Moltisani. So now let's go further. You heard all of that and you're probably thinking, Harrison, you're reading way too much into this. It's just a simple mob story. But if it is, folks, then it's not worth the hyperbole and incredible amount of accolades that it's received over its 20 years. And it is not deserving of the greatest dramatic TV series of all time. Here come my three hypotheses for The Sopranos. Now you might not agree with any of them, and that's just what this podcast is all about. It's about critical thinking. You can accept them 
or discharge them. It doesn't matter to me. However, I make my strongest one with a bevy of critical thinking and not just snap judgments and research to support it. Now, the writers of the show may just tell me to to go pound sand that I'm totally wrong. But let's take a look just for fun. Now, my first hypothesis is that the series is a straight-up, mediocre crime family drama and nothing more, and nothing less. And if this is the case, then it's really nothing more than a series-length Goodfellas and really nothing we haven't seen before. Between mob movies in the late 90s and early 00s, true crime shows, we have a long Dateline episode with fuck and a lot of tits. If it is seen as a straight mob narrative, the writing is not just mediocre. It is sloppy and it is lazy, with plot lines that go nowhere and lead to dead ends. And don't pass it off as they're doing the opposite of scripted TV back then. No, it's mediocre writing with a very boring filler. The family isn't all that engaging. The mob situations, really, they're not all that tense or even fresh or new or inventive. Some low-level Jersey hoods protecting their turf from the real mafia across the river in Manhattan is the entire premise of a straight mob story Sopranos. They're all godfather wannabes, often invoking Michael Corleone and the family, and I am amazed that they don't throw more love at Pacino's Scarface. I went into The Sopranos with this cynical mindset and this belief, and just when I thought I was ready to pull the plug and dismiss it as everything I expected, I decided to dig a little deeper. I decided, however, not to read into anything, but look at the actual data. Why would HBO spend an incredible amount of money on a mob series just to let it be meh? HBO dabbled in series before, such as First and Ten, and if you want to argue it with comedy, with not necessarily the news, and and both were successful. But to debut The Sopranos at a time when DVD and the about-to-be streaming revolution where we're going to start siphoning viewers from cable, well, this would have been a major miscalculation. And granted, many did not have the foresight to see what was coming. DVD was in its heyday in the late 90s, and its reign was short. The internet would take over and change the way we watch TV and movies forever. The Sopranos lived through dial-up and DSL and cable modems. HBO, you know, it knew what was coming down the pike. And while streaming might not be for The Sopranos, it would be later on. So why poison the well? Look, the moment Napster became a thing, the handwriting was on the wall for not just the music industry, but for the film industry as well. As soon as the technology would allow the swapping of major packets of data that video and audio require, the bottom would be out of the tub. And that's exactly what happened. While Cinema, the podcast, is founded on the idea that cynical filmmakers will deliberately make substandard product while possessing the means to do better, I don't believe HBO would allow something like this. HBO was also fighting for viewers against other cable outlets, and it no longer held the monopoly on cable services. Satellite and on-demand chipped away the feature market, so HBO had to come out swinging. My first hypothesis is not valid. The Sopranos was more than a basic crime family dramatic TV series. So with this being said, I am now going to go out of my limb. 
because I know the cast have had their own Sopranos talk shows and where their feelings and clues and theories have been thrown out there. I remember one episode in particular was Michael Imperioli, who played Christopher uh, on the show, offered his thoughts on the meaning of three o'clock, only he really didn't give us anything. We didn't know already, which to me said he didn't really know anything definitive from the writers or show creator David Chase. The debate has come down to a simple question, which in my opinion means nothing and is a distraction from what I'm about to get into next. Did Tony Soprano die in the series finale? My reply is, it kind of doesn't matter. Now here's why. This goes to my second hypothesis. Everyone from the start of the show is dead, and they are all moving through the nine circles of hell with Tony as the omnipresent leader. Everything is seen through his eyes as he is dead, killed in the final episode, and then it starts all over again. Now bear with me. Tony navigates the circles of hell with Dr. Melfi guiding him, trying to get him to learn to eventually leave the nine circles of hell and hell for ascension into heaven. His progress is improving on his soul, but he is not ready and is damned to repeat until he finally repents, reforms, and no longer makes the mistakes we see throughout the life of the series. Or perhaps Silvio is Tony's alter ego, as Silvio's last name is Dante. And Dante, who wrote Dante's Inferno, the character of Dante in Dante's Inferno, is the author's alter ego in traversing the nine circles. Silvio Dante is Tony's number two. And like Dante, becomes even more hardened, evil, and a punisher by the end. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Look, Dante's Inferno takes the form of an allegory with The Sopranos, a story whose literal plot deals entirely in symbols, imbuing the story with a second level of meaning implied by, but broader than, the events of the narrative. So in other words, take Inferno, plug it into The Sopranos, and you have elevated a basic mob series into something that is sheer brilliance. Inferno's use of symbolism involves the punishments of sinners, which are always constructed so as to correspond allegorically to the sins that they committed in life. And folks, this fits perfectly with my second hypothesis. And here's why I invoke all this. Look, I was exposed to Dante's Inferno in high school, as I said, but I embraced it for Death House, Circle of Life. We hear all about it. And the Lion King even solidified it in our pop conscious. At first, I saw the obvious Oedipus nods, the toxic, almost incestuous relationship Tony had with his mother, Livia. Carmela is really Tony's mother. She takes care of him and gives him the love his mother never had. And he, in turn, treats her like shit because he really doesn't know how to return or express it. Get Tony's sister involved, and we see that basically there is a strong Oedipus complex going on there as well. And Dr. Melfi even points that out. But that just couldn't be the end of it. There had to be something more. You could argue that Melfi is the oracle at Delphi, warning of the coming doom. But Melfi isn't really a Greek chorus in this, in this series. She isn't always warning Tony. Instead, she listens. She guides. And that's when I remembered Beatrice from Dante's Nine Circles of Hell. 
Melfi is the one Tony wants and she is unattainable. She is also like Virgil in Dante's Inferno, the guide through hell. So in my opinion, Dr. Melfi is a combo of Virgil and Beatrice from Dante's Inferno. Her job is to guide Tony, to bring him through the nine circles, improve his soul, atone and repent to eventually ascend into heaven where maybe, just maybe, Dr. Melfi awaits him. All right, so now I'm going to give you an English lesson again. I'm, we're going to examine Dante's Inferno for all of you that aren't familiar with it and think I'm talking out my ass. Dante in Dante's Inferno takes a tour of the nine circles of hell with Virgil as the guide. However, we can't go any further without addressing again Tony's second in command, his other side, Silvio Dante. Again, Silvio's last name is Dante. I don't believe that is a coincidence. Silvio, in the start of the show, is the more compassionate side of Tony. He finds pity. He's often kind of comical. He is able to defuse Tony. Tony never takes his anger out on Silvio. He often steps in as Tony's conscience. He also serves as the words of warning, invoking Michael Corleone, saying, Our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. And it amuses Tony at times. In the very first episode, I believe, when they're trying on suits, uh, Dante, Silvio Dante, does this impression. However, like the Dante of Inferno, as the tour through the circles goes on, Dante becomes colder, less compassionate, and nastier. Very much like Tony. Tony's already a bastard at the start of the show, but he is a monster by the end. We will come back to this, but the compassionate, very likable Silvio changed for me when he beat that very kind of naive and stupid stripper's head on the car, taking her away from Ralphie and returning her to the Bing. When he did that, I was like, oh, come on, not Silvio. Silvio's great. I love Silvio. He's really the only nice guy out of all of the wise guys. But then we saw Silvio also has his dark side and he applied it to that poor girl. Now, before I go into the evidence that is a modern retelling of Dante's Inferno and the Nine Circles of Hell, I want to draw attention to the cancer metaphor throughout this series. Everything Tony Soprano comes into contact with is corrupted, like how cancer cells will do to healthy cells and tissue. Cancer figures into almost all the major characters. Tony, Uncle Junior, it begins with Jackie April, Polly, and then it becomes its own metaphor. Everything the Sopranos touch becomes corrupted and ruined. Whenever Tony tries to help, it becomes horrible for the person he professes to care about. Tony Soprano is cancer. He is a corrupter. His own children are corrupted. His wife is corrupted. Their extended families are corrupted. Tony Soprano is cancer again in human form. His contact with Dr. Melfi, it is alluded, brought her to her horrid ordeal in the parking garage. It certainly brought her to consider soliciting Tony's vengeance against a rapist. Now back to Dante's Inferno and the Nine Circles of Hell. I just wanted to make that cancer pit stop. You can cliff notes the plot of Dante's Inferno, just so you know, if you actually care. But here is the breakdown on the Nine Circles. Your first circle of hell is limbo, okay? Purgatory. The first circle is home to the unbaptized and virtuous pagans, it's not heaven, but as far as hell goes, it isn't too bad either. It's 
kind of like the retirement community of the afterlife, like in Beetlejuice. There's kind of like that waiting station in the afterlife. The entire first season centerpiece is about a retirement home where Livia, who claimed to be a good Catholic, revered God, also passively plotted with Uncle Junior to kill her own son. The retirement home is central to the entire series as Polly's mom will also, and I use mom in quotes, will enter and Uncle Junior will be confined to a retirement home as well, eventually a state home. Junior has a heart. He is not totally evil. Same with Livia. Dementia has set in with Junior though. He shot Tony, but not deliberately. He's done bad things, but he's also done good things. And Livia, again, is the same. Polly's mom is the same, condoning the bad behaviors of Polly as he grew up. They are all confined to limbo, and Tony oversees it all. In fact, the Soprano household is limbo as well, keeping those kids and Carmela firmly in limbo. Tony has a chance to be relegated to here. However, his mounting sins will move him beyond this first circle of limbo. Christopher is in limbo at first when we meet him. His life, he's, he is neither high profile, and we see him collecting newspapers when his name finally makes the media. And he's not really talented enough to make it in the regular or civilian world. However, Christopher moves further into the circles, leaving limbo to move into the next circle. As I said, Carmela is in limbo. She is neither fully in Tony's world nor her own. She is neither a great mother or wife. She is not independent. She is a mother figure to Tony, but not even a satisfying lover, as his numerous affairs point out. She isn't an independent woman, as she relies totally on Tony's money for everything. She isn't even really a homemaker, because they have hired help. The Soprano kids are in limbo. AJ is nowhere, neither in Tony or Carmela's worlds fully. While the son, he isn't the favorite. He doesn't know what it all means. As we had said, his grandmother scared him, telling him that in the end, all of life is just one big nothing. AJ is stuck in nowhere land. He is a nowhere man. He can't manage his own feelings. He resents his father's life as he discovers it by growing older. Yet he uses it as a later teen at the clubs and to influence his friends. Even his suicide, which we'll get to, doesn't even take him out of limbo. His desire to go into the military stems from trying to find meaning in a post 9-11 world. He's stuck in this circle of limbo. And while he partakes in some stuff that mirrors his father's ruthlessness, he can't shake the fact that he has some kind of moral awareness. In the end, likely after the final episode, this will be the pattern of AJ's life. I say that AJ lives. He was not shot in the diner. And he will neither excel, nor will he really fail. His whole life, he's going to be in limbo. And he will have to repeat his life over again till he figures it out. Now the same can be said for Meadow. Medical school turns out to be too hard. She doesn't excel either. She wants to go into law for social injustices, making a move out of limbo, and, and a direct defiant one against her father's lifestyle. She rejects being a housewife content to do the spas and lunches all day long. She's oblivious to her husband's doings like her mother. Meadow is stuck in limbo as well, neither here nor there, neither great nor terrible. All of the characters will move into other circles at different points. 
But again, everything is seen through Tony's eyes. Now, the second circle is lust. Lust is written as a wind-buffeted circle of hell, and it is the final destination of the lustful and adulterous, basically anyone controlled by their hormones. And Dante, I think, uh, he, he places uh, the harlots of his time in this circle. Cleopatra and Helen of Troy were, were among its most famous residents during Dante's time. Now, Tony is a sexually gluttonous pig. Lust is his fuel, and he is almost helpless to fight it, save for the real estate girl that his nephew will steal away, and Adriana. Again, another girl of Christopher's. He also rejected the dumb girl that Ralphie will beat to death. She made moves on him and he always rejected her. I could spend an entire episode on lust examples of Tony Soprano. And if you've seen the show, you know what I mean. And you're already counting on your toes the number of times Tony has cheated on his wife. But notice also that Dante wrote that it's a windy circle, a lot of wind. Tony is constantly addressing and looking out at the trees in his backyard and the wind. Even in the coma that he has before he wakes up, there is a wind blowing. Is that the wind of this second circle of hell? Now, keeping with lust, Tony's relationship with Dr. Melfi kind of transcends it. The sociopath that Tony is might just have true feelings for Dr. Melfi. She's the woman he wished he could always get, but knew was beyond his grasp in the long run. Intellectually, he could not keep up with her. And perhaps, maybe, just maybe, Tony fears Dr. Melfi, as she can see the real him, and she finally says this in her last meeting. But lust is the most obvious. Every character is tainted by it. The central hub of the show is the Bing Strip Club, where sex with the dancers is a common thing. The den of ill repute upstairs is where a number of our male characters have ended up, AJ included, getting their lap dances and other things. All the main male characters pass through the Bada Bing, and it's upstairs gentleman's room. Carmela experiences lust several times, starting with her own priest, whom she eventually labels a heretic, and I'll get to that ring in a few. She turns her sights on the house renovator, and then to Furio. This lust almost destroys Tony when Furio contemplates shoving his drunken boss into some helicopter blades. AJ and Meadow go through it in their respective relationships. Meadow finds it with her college friend Noah, but then totally succumbs to it with Jackie Jr., a good-looking, dumb hunk of meat who can't even keep pace with her in a game of Scrabble. AJ gets his first taste with a high school girlfriend and he finds his way out of it with Blanca as he tries to truly care for someone, believing he has felt true love for the first time and not being like his father. But really, his relationship with Rihanna at the end is, is really just more lust. She's a model, kind of going for the stripper that his father goes for. In Vito Spatafor, his lust for the homosexual side of life results in not just the loss of his own life, but his family is lost as well, thrown into limbo. The children are left with no father, and what's left of his legacy is tarnished by his scandalous other life, resulting in Vito Jr.'s being ripped from limbo and right into hell. The kid is ripped into hell under the pretext of a camp to better his attitude and straighten him out after both Tony and even Phil 
try to talk this kid and scare him straight. Vito Jr. is literally ripped from his bed by demons who come in the night and drag that boy to hell. Having a gumar is accepted in this lifestyle. A mistress. Get married, but have someone on the side. Even some of the women tolerate this, with no one showing this more than Carmelo Soprano. Now we go to the third circle, gluttony. It's more than just food, which is always central to these kind of mob shows in the Italian culture. Tony and his crew repeatedly remind us that Italians taught the world how to eat. Uncle Junior says that. Food in this circle is just a metaphor for the sexual and monetary gluttony displayed by each and every character. Even Dr. Melfi is not above gluttony as she continues to imbibe on Tony, feeding off of him, perhaps even enjoying the celebrity and notoriety her mobster patients inspires among her own social circles. Melfi indulges herself in Tony before being made to realize the sin she is committing in her own gluttony. Tony's gluttony eventually bests him, the gambling, the need for constant cash, the padding of his nest, taking care of his wife and women with expensive gifts. Carmela enables it all, consuming the house, the jewels, the cash, and the power while living in limbo, perhaps deliberately to avoid any full commitment to this circle of hell. Carmela would see herself as frugal, I'll bet, not gluttonous. Tony's mother, Livia, transcends gluttony's basic and most obvious elements. She is a glutton for punishment. She loves to mete it out, a perpetual machine of negativity to feed on the misery she creates. She is an emotional vampire who comes off as comical at first until Melfi helps us to understand what a monster Livia Soprano is and the little monsters she has created in her children. While the youngest sister is the, in the periphery for the series, and we get to see she seems to be somewhat successful and likely stable, it is Tony's sister Janice who is the female equivalent of a gluttonous pig. She not just sponges off society, you know, not just like bilking the welfare state and feeding off ex-boyfriend Richie April and indulging herself in every materialistic thing she can take from her brother and people around her. Remember when she got a metal detector to complete her plan of taking her mother's hidden money? But Janice is a thief and a glutton to Bobby's children. She is a virus. She injects her DNA into something and she overtakes it. She robs Bobby of tranquility and peace and robs him of his children after just losing their mother. Janice is a glutton for not just punishment, but control. She wants to create the life she never had. She has another son out there. Uh, what's his name? Harpo. And she will use Bobby and even his kids to get it. She will destroy them regardless to get what she wants. In the end, the big house, a child of her own, mean nothing as Bobby is slain. And now she is left to raise his two kids who despise her and saw through her from the start. By the end... Tony's financial gluttony and his love of good things and showering Carmela with financial incentives as her house building and such have alienated much of his own work family. All watch with disdain, Polly, all of them, as he gambles, as Tony gambles away incredible amounts of money, while all have felt the recent pinches of a decrease in income. Yet Tony's wife is bitterly supported when he is shot, with money going to the Princess of New Jersey while Polly and the others all live far lesser lives. 
Christopher shows this above all. Resentment for Tony giving his cousin the higher earning casino territory while Christopher felt he had earned that and long since paid his dues. That leads us right into the fourth circle, which is greed. This section of hell is reserved for the money grubbers and overly materialistic among us. According to Dante, those condemned to this fourth circle spend eternity fighting over money and valuables. Well, isn't that the whole show of The Sopranos? The killings, the corruption, the violence, for what? For money and valuables. The pursuit of a material life that, in the end, means nothing. You can't take it with you. And we see this perfectly outlined with Uncle Junior. All his life spent pursuing money, wanting power, and in the end, a broken, mentally absent old man without a fucking dime to his name. Tony's greed transcends money and valuables. He wants souls. Taking a gambling friend's sporting goods store wasn't enough. He raided it. He sold it off. He broke it up. Took, his, took this guy's son's college opportunity and helped finish off the guy's family, scattering what's left into the wind. Tony decimates Artie's original restaurant, then ruins his marriage as he corrupts Artie into a philandering mess who falls in love with every young hostess at the front of his new business. He's the wannabe Tony, but he doesn't have it in him. However, Tony takes Artie's goodness. He's a glutton for corruption, ruining Artie as a man and husband and member of the community. He doesn't pay his tab while condescendingly suggesting to Artie that he should do early bird specials and two-for-ones to stay afloat. Tony takes the will from people and feeds off the misery, like his harpy mother that spawned him. Look, greed is across the board with Ralphie and Polly and, and even the kids. They know their father's life, but like their mother, they ignore it enough, stay in limbo as best they can to reap the financial rewards from his profession. Everything comes down to percentages and takes. What's my take? What's your take? The word here is take, which is greed, which leads us to the fifth circle, anger. Dante says the wrathful and angry spend eternity in this circle, waging battle on the river Styx. And Tony personifies anger. It is what Melfi says defines him. It's often uncontrollable. In times where a soft hand and softer words and compassion are needed, Tony's anger overwhelms him. When his suicidal son needs him most, he drags the boy from his bed, throwing him into a closet and pummeling him with clothes, telling him to get out of the house. His anger results in Ralphie's death in the wake of Pio Mai's burning and, and mixing it with the young, dumb stripper that Ralphie brutalized outside the Bing. Tony will step boundaries, making him a rogue in the eyes of Brooklyn. He will kill made men and orders a hit on Phil before Phil can get to him. His anger brings him to laying hands on Carmella, yet he is always stopped just short of his anger from physically harming Dr. Melfi, who is his Beatrice, his spiritual guide through these circles, and ultimately his savior. Anger is the easiest of all the circles because every single character we meet in The Sopranos is fucking angry. Every single one, with perhaps arguably the exception of Polly's two mothers. Now we move into heresy, the sixth circle of hell. And Dante wrote that heretics spend eternity entombed in flaming crypts. Heresy these days is an obscure crime or a sin. It's become so commonplace that we actually believe the bullshit we are fed. 
We see this first called out with Carmela's priest, whom she basically labels a heretic with his passive-aggressive sexual pursuit of her in the first few episodes. The characters hide behind their Catholic faith, killing at whim, adultery, corruption, gluttony. All of these things are excusable, though, when faith is invoked. Things as honor, morality, oaths, as in the induction ceremony of Chris, which later Phil Leotardo says is done in a blasphemous way in Jersey. They're all considered sacred. Deals are done by handshakes, not agreements or contracts. They spit in the hand, they shake, they hug, they kiss. Enemies come to each other with smiles and knives behind their backs. Orders to kill are made over dinner. However, donate to the church, like Polly finds out, it doesn't get you out of sin. Polly finds this out twice in the beginning and ending of the series, and also finds that his mother, a nun, bore him out of sin, and his whole life is a lie. The church really doesn't want Tony and his ilk. They'll take his money, but they know it is dirty, therefore making them heretics. TV makes the entire nation know who Tony and his thugs really are because of the news, but it doesn't stop the church from taking the donations. In fact, in the Blue Comet episode, when Silvio is ambushed in the Bing parking lot, go back and look. You can clearly see a priest standing among the strippers, dancers, and patrons witnessing the shooting. Why is a priest at a strip club, especially on the afternoon shift? I'm willing to bet he's not saving souls. Tony's sociopathic behavior is heresy. His love and defense of infants and animals is negated by his brutality and misogyny. Yet he tells Melfi in one of his last visits that he believes himself to be a good guy. All of these people likely find themselves to be virtuous and kind, I think, firmly placing them in this circle of heresy. There isn't a single good virtuous person in this entire series. Even Agent Harris is corrupted. He gives Tony information leading to Phil. He tips him off about possible hits in exchange for Tony's help with the terrorist angle. One could argue Harris is doing it because they want Tony alive and in the courtroom with pending indictments. But Harris is also a heretic. Following Tony's Machiavellian ends justify the means behavior. The seventh circle is violence. Dante is not being politically correct in this level. It is composed of three individual rings. The outer ring is filled with blood and fire and reserved for murders and thugs. That's fine, but it gets sketchier from there. The middle ring is where, according to Dante, suicide victims go. They're transformed into trees and fed upon by harpies, which I guess are somehow related to bugs, maybe? I don't know. The inner ring is a place of burning sand. It is reserved for blasphemers and sodomites. The whole series is violence. Place who you will within these rings. We know where Vito goes in the wake of his gay lifestyle. We know where the murders and thugs go, and the show is replete with them. In fact, Phil calls Vito a sodomite. But what about the suicides? AJ never makes it. However, Gloria Trillo is the clear suicide in this already damaged before she met Tony, once again his contact corrupts. She grows worse after meeting him, falling in her job, losing income, and eventually mentally collapsing into death. Gloria is not turned into a tree, but she is a harpy, 
as Tony quickly sees she is a version of his mother. He's known her all his life, he said. If you want to draw the tree analogy, trees are often a symbol of motherhood, of Mother Earth. And Gloria has her roots in Livia. Might be stretching it a bit, but there is a connection. The eighth circle is fraud, and it's divided into ten trenches. We won't get into the specifics of who goes where, but you'll find con artists and all sorts in here in this circle. Dante described the trenches really as ditches. We could spend five episodes of cinema discussing every instance of fraud, from false pay stubs to bribery to fraud alliances. It's all there. The series and its characters are defined by their fraud. However, the greatest fraud is Tony himself to his family and the deceptive belief system that they all share as co-enablers. Their whole life is a fraud. Everything in that home was purchased with blood money. Everything they touch is corrupt. Every single member of this well-to-do family is a fraud. There is no greater fraud than Tony Soprano, who is seen as a narcissistic sociopath, whose progress is truly fraudulent, making Melfi an accessory to Tony's growing ability to ease through this world. Soprano's entire world is fraudulent. From the compassion he shows to the help he gives, there is nothing genuine. When compassion is shown, it is likely artificial to keep the false, fraudulent face he must have to walk about in the civilian world. His love for his earners and men is fraudulent, blatantly pissed on with his excessive life, gambling and raging actions that that result in huge cash payouts for his violent mistakes and orders. It's taking money from his own people. It's all fraud. And the last circle, the ninth circle, is treachery. And it is seen in Dante's Inferno as a frozen wasteland occupied by history's greatest traitors. A frozen wasteland. All of Jersey can be seen of this. The belief that Polly is the true traitor is defined by me. I believe Polly, in the end, sold Tony out. If you remember also, Christopher is a traitor because he said just before he shot the writer in his apartment, I can go get a wire. I can go to the feds right now. And Tony always feared that Christopher didn't have it in him. And if you remember, both Christopher and Polly got lost in the frozen winter wasteland, walking about where Polly lost his shoe. And that is also a symbol in dreams, losing your shoe of losing your way. And it's not a positive omen. Tony will kill his traitor's cousin, played by Steve Buscemi in the winter on the cold front porch of a wasteland in upstate New York. When Tony dreams of treachery and betrayal, they are in the cold wintertime wasteland of some Jersey boardwalk and beach. It is here where he will look through the binoculars and see himself shooting Polly. The only thing deserving of death for Tony is treachery. Patsy Peril is also likely a traitor in Tony's midst. Vengeful for the death of his twin, it is likely he and Polly set Tony up to be removed with either of them assuming the new role. We have how many of these characters flipping for the feds, wearing wires. It started with Sal, but had been going on for some time. Adriana found out, flipping, but then trying to go honest and betrayed by Chris who sold her out to Tony with now a a more vengeful Silvio killing her in the Jersey woods. Tony betrays his wife repeatedly. 
He betrays his children. He betrays his own mother. Tony sees Junior as betraying him and in the end felt betrayed by his own Beatrice when Dr. Melfi finally tells him no more and shows him the door. In the end, whether Tony was betrayed by Butchie, even though peace was desired, the treachery will continue as Carlos will testify. Tony will go to trial. At the end in Made in America, Tony says, uh, his lawyer says to him, 80-90% chance you're going to be indicted. Tony is going to jail. There will be a trial. He will likely be imprisoned if he wasn't killed in Holston's diner. And the betrayal and treachery will go on without him. And since we are in hell, a piece of symbology that resonates in the episode where Tony goes to Vegas in the wake of Christopher's death. He tripped on peyote with Chris's ex, even more betrayal. But in the Vegas casino, Tony and the girl stop before a machine that clearly shows Satan in the center of a circle glaring back at them. Dante's Inferno, the casino and its representative that Tony dropped the peyote and has somehow entered into the ninth circle into hell. This leads to the continuing thread of storytelling in the series that Chris and Tony discuss, and that is storytelling as a way to achieve immortality. And nothing symbolizes this more than Chris's movie. Dante places much emphasis in his poem on the notion of immortality through storytelling, everlasting life through legend and literary legacy. Several shades ask the character Dante to recall their names and stories on earth upon his return. They hope, perhaps, that the retelling of their stories will allow them to live in people's memories. Now, before we get to Cleaver, think about this. The importance that, are, that is placed on these shitty pictures of the fallen uh, family leaders, like your place of honor is going up on a restaurant wall. And there are always these very unflattering, awful pictures. Look at those pictures again. Look at the picture of Christopher. Of all the pictures you got of this guy, that dumb one of him sitting there with headphones on, that's the one you put up to immortalize? Nobody can get some decent headshots of these guys? That's your legacy? Now, Chris's Cleaver movie really exemplifies this. Chris and Tony, in one of their last conversations, they talk about how the movie will keep their stories going. Their memories will be there forever. The film represents something they created that will exist long after they are gone. And it is no coincidence that of all the things they could write, it is a horror movie. Because that's exactly what The Sopranos and their lifestyle, that's what it is. Tony is a monster. He is no different than Jason Voorhees. He is no different than Michael Myers. The movie Cleaver represents all of the circles of hell, with Tony and Carmela seeing the film representing betrayal. Tony tells Melfi he is angry that Chris betrayed him with his portrayal in the film by Danny Baldwin. Tony often resents stories of the old days, the oral history of his family and the business, even when it comes to his own father. He even tells Feech he is sick of hearing how it used to be done and Feech's stories and Polly's stories are a constant source of irritation for Tony. Yet these are the things Tony wants as he often wonders himself, how will he be remembered? And the irony is for Uncle June, who also worried about that, he can't even remember. Tony accepts his family movies from his sister, but they do very little for him when he finally watches, 
after managing to destroy a nice birthday getaway in a fight with Bobby. Storytelling is important to this narrative, and it makes sense to pair this with Dante's Inferno, as that story still endures to this day. When seen in this framework, inside of Dante's Nine Circles of Hell, in his Inferno, The Sopranos, in my opinion, is pure brilliance and the most nuanced, well-written, and existential dramas ever put to screen. So the infamous ending, the screen goes black, and then Don't Stop Believing comes on. Who did Tony see coming through the door? Meadow? His killer? Or did his killer approach from the three o'clock position, the members only guy coming out of the bathroom, which if you're looking from Tony's point of view at the front of the diner, to his right is his three o'clock position. Or did Tony see himself? Does he walk in and see himself and he is killed again and everything starts all over like a circle? After he leaves Uncle Junior one last time, he enters Holston's diner in a brown shirt, but seeing himself sitting in the multicolored bowling shirt, he is watching himself as his penance is about to repeat. It is circular. Now, you can argue... No, that's not a different shirt. He walked in, his coat was covering the two sides where the other colors are. It's brown down the middle. Look, let's say I'll give you that. He's still seeing himself sitting in that diner or it's a really bad jump cut. So you tell me, were the editors inept or is the story trying to tell us something? Tony is envisioning himself. It's all coming back full circle. And Meadow, at the same time, is having trouble parking the car outside, doing it over and over until she gets it right. What if after the black, we see Tony emerging from a panic attack, realizing he needs a therapist, and the whole fucking thing starts all over again until he breaks the cycle, until he truly repents and atones and improves. He can never reunite with his beloved Beatrice until he works for her, earns her, and he becomes the soul worthy of entering heaven. Tony Soprano is a doomed figure, doomed to repeat his mistakes and personal hell until he has truly learned and can move on to ascend. Now, my last hypothesis, I told you I'd give you three, but there was my Dante's Inferno, Nine Circles of Hell. What do you think? You probably think, Harrison, you're full of shit. So then if that's the case, Let's go to the third hypothesis. And that is the whole thing is a Twilight Zone style coma possibility. But for me, it's probably the next weakest of them all. In this hypothesis, Tony is really Kevin Finnerty, his alter ego and fake name, in a coma and seeing a fantasy life. Tony woke from that coma, fearing the life of Kevin Finnerty as dull and hell is boring. He said, I don't want to go back to that place. If the coma angle is to be explored, perhaps we are seeing everything through Silvio's coma experience as he is perpetually damned to relive these events forever. There is also the possibility that everything we see is through dementia, that the Alzheimer's Tony and slash Kevin Finnerty was diagnosed with has taken hold. What if Tony is in an Alzheimer's-induced delusion sitting in a jail cell somewhere or a state facility, lost forever in the hell of his memories. Look, this is the surrealistic aspect. Whether Tony or Silvio, 
It is interesting both share similar fates as Silvio is Tony's other half. He is married to Silvio just as he is married to Carmela. This could be the last stop to Willoughby-type episode in The Twilight Zone, with Kevin Finnerty living a Walter Mitty life. Perhaps Finnerty is in a coma or in a dementia state, and the TV blaring Tony's real-life exploits on the news are seeping into Kevin's subconscious. We saw the TV seeping into Tony's coma from episodes of Kung Fu through other things influencing his actions and senses while in that world. What if the entire series is Kevin Finnerty imagining a fantasy world where he is Tony Soprano? Off the wall? Yeah. And something I'm not going to give too much more time to because it's easy to step off into the what-if universe and we can start drawing any conclusions. You've stuck with me this far. And as far as I know, no one from the cast or others have offered up the nine circles of hell hypothesis. So take it for what you will. But once I started viewing the show through this viewpoint, it transcended into something magnificent for me. And it changed away from a mediocre mob story, the kind that I expected going in. Go back, give it a watch, and I'm sure you can find a lot more than I've outlined here. Thanks for your time and listening to this supersized episode. Look forward to talking to you again real soon. Thank you.